if you only listen to published papers and meta-analysis results, you will never be able to correctly help practitioners because the problem is that not everything has been answered by research, but it's actually happening. And some things have been answered clearly and there is no research to back it up or no research to back it up yet. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is a little bit different. So we've got JB Marin, who has been on the podcast a couple of times discussing uh, sprint training, uh, speed profiling, etc. But we've got him on today to discuss research and understanding research, making the most of what's out there from a research perspective and how it can really be used to impact the training that we do with our athletes. So first off, we discuss how to read a research paper. I don't think that's taught enough, how to do it properly, how to be critical, how to go through it systematically, pick out the red flags that may present themselves, which may make you question and critique further. Then we have a little chat around the research process, which I, again, I don't think is discussed enough and probably needs to be known from a practitioner perspective so they can understand research better. Then we have a little chat around payment for reviews, which is discussed all the time, and a few other really important topics that practitioners should be aware of when they come to looking for research, trying to understand research, and most importantly, use research to influence practice. So really interesting episode coming up with JB. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with JB. JB Marin, welcome back to the Pace Performance Podcast. I'm not quite sure if it's the third, fourth, fifth, who knows? Yeah, but third. Thank third? Okay, okay. Well, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. This one is going to be slightly different, but nevertheless, still as important as the ones we've done before. And it was a, a topic that was that was put forward by you, which is great, after we've been speaking about a few other things. And around how practitioners understand research, make the most of research, the research process, which I don't think, from my personal opinion, is taught particularly well in universities. But we'll get your take on a bunch of different things when it comes to research. But before we do, would you mind just giving us a brief bio, if people don't know? your story. Yeah, uh, so thanks for having me again. Um, I'm, a, I'm a currently a full professor at the University of Saint-Étienne in France. Um, I'm a researcher as well and a consultant in sports science. 
And um, I have also a role as a, an editor in, uh, in uh, two journals, uh, Journal of Sports Sciences and uh, Medicine Science in Sports and Exercise. And um, I think I've been in that publication game for 20 years now. And uh, I have also been on the, on the practitioners applying science game for a, a, a few years now. And uh, I'm very happy to discuss these topics. Excellent. Excellent. Right. Let's, let's dive in. I think the best place for us to start is how practitioners or how anyone for that matter goes through a research paper, the order that they go through, where should they start? How should the flow be for trying to understand and at the end of the day, take out bits that they need to for their own practice? What would your recommendation be? Yeah, so that, that's important because it's going to be my recommendation, but not necessarily the current practice for what I see and what I know. So I think the wrong way to go through a paper is to just uh, read the title and, and, and move on. Uh, that's a very wrong way because sometimes the title is, is very accurate. Sometimes the title is very misleading. Uh, sometimes in the title, there's a bold conclusion that is so-so supported by the actual data. Um, my take is first to try and read the abstract because that is a bit more telling. Uh, but again, the abstract might also be very misleading. There might be, the abstract is a, a constrained amount of words. So the authors basically select what they want to put in the abstract and also what they don't want to put there. So it's a very disappointing uh, answer now because um, I'm afraid if you want to really know uh, what's in a paper, you have to go through the paper and, and, and it takes time. But my point is, if you want really to get the full information, you have to spend time. So, and there's another way is to find infographics online that are uh, published, for example, by, by people like Jan Lemmer or by uh, people like you on your blog. Uh, but it's always an edited uh, content. Even if you try to be objective, you do a kind of editorial work. And so my, my advice, and that's maybe the, the, the sentence for today, is that go through the extensive content because the extensive content of the paper is already a kind of a selection of what has been done throughout the research process. So you don't want to get to a selection of a selection of what was actually done. So Disappointing news, there, there's going to be some time spent there, but maybe we can also discuss about strategies for that. Of course. Now that just comes into our mind now because there's, there's plenty of people who will sign up for various research review services and that's knocking that summary of a summary of a summary of a summary and it's just knocking that. And then so much interpretation, there's Chinese whispers that goes on through to the point of the end user or the practitioner actually trying to understand what's, yeah. what's happened. To me, if you're, a, if you're a serious practitioner and you want to seriously add the research content to your overall thinking process, you want to do that seriously. And a good way in sports sciences to do that seriously is to go to the source of research, and that is PubMed, and that's where all the indexed journals, publications, we'll talk about that later, uh, are uh, published and known. So my, my advice is to use PubMed, design some research alerts 
on your keywords and try to um, receive these alerts, scan the different topics and find the golden nuggets, I mean, the ones that you will use, really, among the mud that's coming out of these research alerts. You want to be a gold digger. You want to remove the mud to eventually find the golden nuggets. That's the game. And my practice right now is that I will give you a very simple example. If you take the sprint alert, you will receive on a weekly basis between five and 20 uh, PubMed uh, lines, among which maybe two or three papers will be interesting. And to know that it will take you one minute to, to just read the 10 titles and say, okay, this one and this one. Then to dive into these abstracts, it will take you one or two more minutes. And eventually that week, nothing will be interesting. Maybe next week, two papers will be interesting and you want to read them, but you are missing nothing that is published. And to me, that's the best way because this very nice paper that you eventually see and find this way, maybe will never be uh, Jan Lummerized so you will never have an infographic on that. Maybe um, people like you or other famous blogs will never comment on that. And so if you're waiting for these selected pieces of science, you might miss that. So go to the source and it's not a very difficult game. My point is if you have two or three very important topics, I don't know, sleep, recovery, whatever, training load, that might take you something around two hours per week to get to the raw information. And honestly, two hours per week, if you want to be serious with that, you can. Let's go back to, you've, you've, you've found the topic, you've been roped in by the title on your PubMed alerts. You think that's, that's applicable to me, that's applicable to me, I'm gonna dive in. So yeah. although we've been roped in by a, a, a nice catchy title, we're not taking the title as, as read, but we think it's one that we're interested in. We've read the abstract, okay, we're, we're further getting interested in what this is gonna say. Where next? What's the, what's the structure that you would go through? So then, if you ticked all these boxes and you say, this paper is definitely the one I need and I want to read, then you need to access to the paper. I mean, you know, a paper is like a song. It's like, it's like a, a, a three or four minute song. If you want to listen to that song entirely, you have to find where is that song, okay? So exactly the same for a paper. A paper is roughly two to five pages. Lucky now, it's available as a PDF file. So it means you can find it in just a couple of clicks and you want to find that paper and, and store that paper and read that paper, the, the, the raw content. The, the, so just like finding a song is pretty easy, you go to the platforms and you know, uh, finding a paper, you have, Three main ways. For, I, I will only talk here about the legal ways. Okay? <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a paid professor. Of course, of course. So three legal ways. One is to Google. I advise you to Google the title because the title is unique to the paper and somewhere maybe there's a PDF file that is stored and available. We have as author the right to share privately the, the PDF files. The second one is to see PubMed because sometimes there's a free link to access to the, um, to the PDF file. And the final thing is 
there's always someone that is an email contact for that paper and you want to email that person. And honestly, uh, I have never seen someone refusing to share their work by email. So it's very, very, uh, it, it almost never happens now that you cannot access the raw material, the, the, the paper itself. So you and get, then you read. Of course. So, <laughs> we've, so we've, we've emailed the author, like you say, and that's, that's often a source that I go to to contact an author about, we're talking about summaries here, about a summary. Um, so you've done that. You've got sent the paper. The author, the lead author, the, uh, has been really nice to send you the PDF. Where now? So that's very important. Uh, my experience is that the, the most important to read is the introduction, in my opinion, because the introduction says why this topic is interesting, what do we know, what are we going to find out in the study you're going to read. If you're okay with that, then you can read the entire, the, the, the rest of the paper. Okay, so intro first, if the authors did their job correctly. And also the intro will allow you to see, okay, that's the context. Maybe from the intro, you will say, that's not my context. And uh, I was misled by the abstract. And so I move on. So the intro, and then I will uh, skip directly to the main results. That is usually the beginning of the discussion, not to the results section, because the results section very often is, is all the results. And the, the beginning of the discussion section, if it's well written, is the summary of the results. Um, I wouldn't skip to the conclusions because the conclusions is sometimes um, an interpretation of the authors of their own results. And if you don't want to be uh, you know, influenced by the author's interpretation of their results, you want to have your own interpretation of the results, I would go to the to the to the results section so intro to results why not the methods because in my opinion so of course the best is to read the entire paper but if you want to save time the methods will be maybe something that you will uh, read then just to have an idea about how did they uh, come to that result so some colleagues of mine might disagree and say only the methods matter but in terms of getting the practitioners to, to the main information of the paper, I think the methods come second because we trust the review process to allow most of the publications to be based on a sound methodology. But of course, at the end of the day, if you find the results interesting, you want to see if the methods are you know, scientifically correct. But it's not to disrespect anyone here, but sometimes, on some practitioners don't have all the keys to, 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 to get to other methods really correct and appropriate. So they want to trust the review process and the authors. Going back to the introduction, and that's the why this is happening in the first place, why you know leading you into the results and the, and the discussion. Is there any red flags? And this will be a common question of, of every um, section of the paper. Any red flags in the introduction that you would commonly read and go, hmm, that's not pointing me in the right direction of how this is going to go here. Yeah. So normally, um, very, very experienced readers can find the red flags, but unexperienced readers, like, you know, uh, uh, some people who are not in academia, 
uh, may not. So to me, the main red flag in the intro is reference cherry picking or reference um, misquotation or wrong citation. So I tell you the, an example. You want to say, um, this thing has never been studied in this context. Unfortunately, sometimes this might not be true and authors might only select a couple of you know, references that, that support their point. And if you don't know the other references that do not or the, the extensive uh, content of the literature, you might follow their argument. You might say, okay, they, they, it has never been studied. In fact, it's not true. So this is very difficult to, to point. So again, you have to trust the authors on that. To me, the main red flag is um, uh, some arguments that are not very logic and that show that what the authors really wanted was to publish a paper, not to address an important question. And because they know that, they will, they will drive the reader to the, our study is important, with some arguments that are uh, not very convincing. And this, I think any practitioner can identify that. Interesting. Okay, let's move to the results. Oh, sorry, the, the start of the discussion, start the discussion, which is the summary of the results. Anything in there that you would have as a red flag? Uh, Commonly. In a, in a direct manner, no, because the beginning of, I mean, the summary of the results is like, a, and, and, and the red flag comes from reading the results section. Because sometimes, again, sometimes again, uh, authors may, I don't say that it's always the, the case, but sometimes authors may select some of the results, uh, omit mentioning some others in the discussion, like we, we don't discuss that, even if, even, even if it's part of the results. And so no specific red flag here, but always think that a paper is also a subjective interpretation of the authors about their own work. I mean, mine included, it's always the case. So where would we go after that? We'd continue down the discussion? Is that what, is that? Yeah, that's yeah. important. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to have a direct application of research, maybe it's not very necessary to read fully the entire discussion. Again, if you don't have time, if you have time, do it. But um, I would go directly to the limitation section. If I don't have time to read the full discussion, I will go directly to the limitation section. And this is very fun because sometimes papers don't discuss any type of limitations. So impossible. No research is perfect. So the limitation section to me as an editor, for example, is a good way to see the, the amount of subjective approach of the authors towards their own study. Because if the limitations are uh, clearly discussed and they make sense, it means that the authors are aware that their work is not perfect and they want to tell that to the reader, honestly. To me, the, the limitation section of a paper also tells about the, the overall degree of honesty of the authors. And so, for example, when the only limitation is to say, uh, we use the almost perfect device instead of a really perfect device, and that's a limitation, if that's the only point in the study and there's nothing else, either you have a masterpiece or the authors decided to not discuss something else. And this is a red flag. 
You see what I mean? So, uh, and again, if, if a paper doesn't have any limitation section, first, in my opinion, it shouldn't be published because it means uh, the authors decided that there was nothing potentially you know, wrong in the study, impossible. Uh, and second, it means that maybe uh, it was not reviewed perfectly because none of the reviewers, none of the editors in the entire review process told the authors, please be honest with the readers, explain the entire picture. And that's a really big red flag. This may be a little bit transition to the next topics that we're going to discuss, but you've mentioned a few things that were highlighted to me because what I see from often from practitioners is the assumption that researchers like yourself, like many others, are there to do research for them directly, where that's not necessarily the case all the time. Because like you've said, yeah. people want to publish a paper because they have to publish a paper or want to publish a paper. It's not necessarily thinking of the end person who's going to be receiving this information and applying this information. Is that right? So this is a very, yeah, this is a very complex point of discussion and we need to have a lot of nuance here. So I'll try to be, you know, clear and nuanced. Okay. First, yes, publish or perish is sometimes the incentive for people to publish. They write that they want to address an important question, but maybe the main, you know, uh, push is have one more paper. Okay. Sometimes this happens. And sometimes the authors are also constrained by their own academic context. And in some countries, that's real. When I discuss that with my Spanish colleagues, it's, it's, it's true. In some countries, the number of papers is directly related to your academic opportunities. So to be clear, if you have 30 papers or 130 papers in, in some countries, you have more opportunities of becoming a professor at the university. Clearly, so one more paper is good, whatever the, the answer, the, the research question answered, okay? So, uh, yes, if I have the opportunity to publish one more piece of work, I'm going to do it. Even if the question, uh, I say the question is important, but really people in the field do not follow that, okay? So that's first. The second point is that... Um, it's important to, to understand that in research, not every research published has necessarily a direct application objective. Sometimes in research, this is what we call more basic or fundamental research, contrasting with applied research. Sometimes in research, the question that we answer is just pushing the knowledge forward, regardless of any direct applications. But maybe in 10 years from now, these new results will have direct research applications. So sometimes a paper has very little direct applications or presents a technology that no one can use. But in 10 years from now, uh, people in the field will coach or will use that tech you know, directly. So you want to be also uh, on the practitioner's part, uh, uh, okay with that, with that fact. So, and as I always say, not everything that shines is gold, that glitters is gold. So it means that, uh, again, only the content counts. So some papers are published in highly ranked journals 
and they are uh, sometimes not carrying some very, very, very uh, game-changing information. Sometimes it's the opposite. And, and so we go back to read the content and think for yourself, is that really you know, important uh, right now? Yes, no. Uh, is that important for the future? You don't know, and, and so on. But yes, there is much more than uh, helping the field in the incentive to, to publish things, clearly. One thing that also maybe on practitioners' radar, <clears throat> maybe maybe not, I may be speaking out of turn, but it could be the, the quality of the journal. So the quality of the journal, it's something that they've heard of. It's something that comes up all the time. Or there's some with a more obscure title out of a, I don't know, a, a different country or maybe one that doesn't have, I don't know, mm. a, a background in sports science or whatever it is. Do, but should that matter? Yeah. Should the pr- practitioner should be looking at the quality of the journal and using that in their assessment to see whether they spend half an hour reading it or not? So, nuance again. Um, I'm going to answer to the question overall, yes, but. So, yes, overall, the, what does the quality... Well, first, what does the quality of a journal mean? It means the, the, the rank of that journal in the field uh, with some very, um, you know, imperfect indices. But the rank of a journal means many, many people want to publish there. So it means only top quality methods, type of paper, and very important questions will be you know, selected. And overall, uh, the quality of the journal, its, uh, its rank in the field, its rank in the quartiles of the field, and maybe its impact factor. But the more we, the more we, we use the impact factor, the more we see that uh, it's not a very good indicator. Uh, the reputation of the journal, uh, is important, but, and that's a but, you will find some lower level quality articles and less important research questions in some top ranked journals and vice versa. And the, to me, the most important is the vice versa. Don't only check what's published in the top tier journals, because sometimes in lower uh, impact journals, you will have the study that is really answering one of your questions and that is really important for your practice. Uh, To give you a a personal example, our most impactful paper um, with with my group has been published in a journal that is highly ranked in the field of sports science, but is not a top-ranked journal. So if you only look at top-ranked journals, uh, you will miss this kind of info. So we go back to the first question, only the contents of the papers count. And there is many, many strategies and things behind why is that study published in that journal. There is so many things behind the scenes that at the end of the day, remove that filter because to me, it's not a very good filter. Again, the best filter is PubMed. It is indexed, so it has been peer reviewed. So there has been some kind of a control there and What's the content? Next thing that may be on a filter is whether a particular author is well-known, has got a social media following, has not got a social media following, or there's someone on that paper that they recognize, whether it's the first author, it's the 10th author. How important should that filter be? 
So the, um, there should be a filter regarding people, but to me, you should not be biased by the presence on social media, the number of followers. I have, I have five or six times more followers than many of the Nobel prizes. You see what I mean? Yes. So, not to not to you know to dismiss my own research, but it means that some people are publishing some very nice and important stuff. They have zero presence on Twitter or social media, and vice versa. Some people have a very high presence. They comment on everything on a given topic. You see them in any discussion. They have zero record, scientifically speaking, on that topic. So. I would remove the social media filter because it's a bad filter and I would go back to my own perceived reputation of that author. So typically, uh, I will not name people, but you have an author, you have read several papers from that author, okay, or some papers he co-authored and every time it answered a very good question the methods were nice, well-written, and, and you enjoy that author. So he has reputation for you. That's enough. You have it. So it means be careful because if nothing changes radically in his approach and his life and everything, his coming papers will be interesting for you as well. Even if they are not active on Twitter, even if they never engage on, on social media, uh, I'm there too type of discussions. Uh, their information is, is important for you. This is the filter you need to, you need to, 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 to improve. In terms of research and the impact that the research can have on someone's remuneration or their position or their academic status, just from a, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be the same across the whole world. There may be different ways this is divided up. But if you get a paper published in a high impact factor journal, from a university perspective, is that kind of job done? Or is it, okay, well, if it gets 10,000 reads, that's even better than 100 reads? Or as soon as it's published, is that done, tick? There's not really a, yeah, it doesn't go any further than that? To me, this is, a, this is the key question, in fact. Because, and I think that, so I have like a 20 years experience in that game and, uh, I feel things are changing now. In the past, even today, the, the main today the, the main driver of grants, applications, um, overall impact of the research, perceived impact, positions is the CV and the number of papers in some countries. The impact factor of the papers in other countries, if you take France, for example, we have been shifting from a number of publications to the quality of publications, more or less. And so it means that, yes, overall right now, to get funding, to get positions, to obtain some things in your academic career, number of papers and impact factor of the reviews is important. But more and more, we, we see this imperfection of these, of these uh, metrics and we are more and more moving to some alternative metrics. And so alternative metrics, we call them alt metrics, include the impact of the research, the social media impact of the research. Are people talking about your research, yes or no? 
Is there like an impact in your field, yes or no? How many people read your paper? Because uh, if nobody reads it, nobody cites it, and nobody talks about it, that's, that's a reduced impact, regardless of, the, of your name or, or, or the journal. So these alt metrics are more and more included in the overall assessment of research and academic careers, but it's only the very beginning. So the main, the main um, um, incentive is still uh, quantity and quality of the impact of the journals, yes, unfortunately. Because there could, be, there could be a paper that gets a lot of citations off the back of it, but does that mean it's actually having an impact in the field or just other researchers are reading it and using it for their purpose? Yeah, to me, the citation number is a kind of a biased index. We are only discussing about, about imperfect indices, but there's no perfection. So why? Because, for example, reviews of literature are very, very, very much and more cited than experimental papers because they bring a summary of research and instead of citing like 10 studies, you're going to cite one big review. This is why in the last years, um, uh, some authors have understood that it's much better for your CV and your overall impact uh, on, on the grant applications and your future position to publish more reviews with higher impacts because they are published in some journals that play the game of increasing their impact than experimental papers. It's crazy to me. I have some colleagues in their, in their CV, there is more than one third of their research output that is not experimental. They are not answering questions. They are just summarizing works and they publish some reviews on topics they never studied themselves or they publish reviews on super different topics just because there's an, a higher impact factor and there's gonna be more citations. So this is, this is a kind of a bias. I don't say that uh, reviews are bad or meta-analyses are not useful. I just say sometimes uh, they are not published for the good reasons. It's interesting, the last probably two years, I've got quite a few messages from people that have been on the podcast or in academia who've asked for the numbers of downloads that particular their particular episodes have had. So I'm guessing that was for a application for a promotion or something like that. So clearly... Like you say, it backs up the fact that this people are looking to them kind of metrics to see what impact it's having or they're having. Yeah, but I agree with that. And to me, this is interesting because it means that uh, we move from, uh, from the impact of our papers to the impact of our research activity and, and what we have to say and our ideas. And to me, this is a good point because uh, typically if... If your, if your podcast there or your, your ideas discussed there has been downloaded a lot, maybe it's because you're well-known and so on, but it's also because some people told to others that, hey, you should read that and hey, you should listen to that. Because if your content is not good, then you will have less downloads. That's for sure. Because the downloads are not only because people know you, it's, only, it's also because people saw others recommending your work and this is interesting because again we have some people who are very very interesting to follow and listen and they have a very low number of papers slash impact factor of their papers it doesn't mean their ideas are not interesting to the field you see what i mean so this is what i call the alt matrix uh, and it's I, I i like to mix this 
I have some colleagues, they have a crazy list of publications, something amazing like 30 papers per year, okay? And they are almost not present on uh, I discuss my points uh, type of, uh, of things. You see what I mean? But the, as we go on and these alt metrics become more important, the people that are fantastic, doing amazing work, but aren't actually, but maybe see the publication of the paper as the end point, they're not going to get the kudos from these alt, met, alt metrics that others are going to. So social media presence and podcasts and blogs and reviews and things are going to be even more important for academic careers. And, and this is totally the point. For some academics, the publication is the end point of a process. It means my paper is there. I have my paper. I don't care. For some others, the publication is the starting point of a process, or at least is in the middle of a process. To me, this is clear. The first type of people say, my research is my objective. The second type of people say, my research is something to feed my objective, that is changing practice or, or you know, uh, connecting to people. 10 years ago, we could have the excuse of, yes, but I don't know how to be there on social media. I don't know how to write a blog and to, to get that published. Today, it's impossible. If you really want to spread your ideas beyond your PubMed line, you can. If you don't, I mean, it's not a judgment, but if you don't, it's because you've decided not to enter the process and that's it. So it's going to take a very quick break. I hope you enjoy part one. So over in part two, we're going to have a little chat around MSc, so masters, and then the trend of practitioners going and pushing for PhDs. Is that going to become the norm? Is that truly having an impact on athlete preparation out there in the wild? So really interesting part two coming up with JB. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with JB. I may be saying something a little bit controversial here, and it's not just for controversial sake, but like you said, given SportsMyth and we publish non-academic uh, articles, often from academics, summarizing their work. But one thing that always bugs me to a certain extent is an over-reliance or over-popular comment of, do you have a reference for that? Where's the, where's the reference for that? Or what can you can you send me the journal that backs this up or whatever? And often these pieces are opinion pieces, are experiential pieces based on what happens in a one particular football club. And the comment, oh, have you got a reference for that? No, because there isn't a reference for that, because that's what he or she does in this particular environment 
But I don't know. It's just a but. It is a bugbear, and I don't know whether that's an over reliance on research or that's just how people have been educated that if it doesn't say it in a particular well in a reference in a research paper, well we can't do it. I don't know. What's yeah. your take on that? So this is this is the thing I have thought about the most in the last two or three years. There's, you know that movie Scarface? Yes. There's a sentence, in Scar- so maybe some people won't get the reference, but there's a sentence in Scarface where they say, don't get high on your own supply. It means if you, if you always sniff your own stuff, uh, you're going to end up, you know. It means that if you, you know the ivory tower thing, if you, if you only live by the academic pyramid of evidence, like you know, opinion pieces, I, I hate this model of academic pyramid of evidence. It's a good descriptive model to explain young people that a meta-analysis has more power than an opinion. But if you only live by that, you're going to die by that. It means that um, if you only listen to published papers and meta-analysis results, you will never be able to correctly help practitioners. Because the problem is that not everything has been answered by research, but it's actually happening. And some things have been answered clearly, and there is no research to back it up, or no research to back it up yet. I can tell you the, something very, from my experience, I have seen some, some um, coaches, like uh, US university coaches, who have worked more than 40 years with people, you know, sprinting, jumping, playing, playing team sports. They have never published a paper, but they have a life experience where they have tested, and some, some of them have a real scientific uh, uh, mind and process. They never publish anything. It's not their job. And they have tested more athletes than the sum of the entire research on that topic. You see what I mean? The published one. So, of course, uh, again, I'm a paid professor, so I shouldn't say don't trust the, the research evidence. But I would say there is the pyramid of academic published evidence, but please let, let the door open to some ideas and some flow that comes from outside of that pyramid. It's, it's the story of the ivory tower. If, if you want to be safe and stay there, when people ask, where is the evidence for that? They don't really want to know where is the evidence. They know there is no published evidence and they just want to tell the, the, the person who wrote that, hey, man, uh, it's not academic, you know, stamped, published, so uh, uh, remove this ID. This is, this is terrible because the, the biggest IDs in research, uh, whatever the field, have always started as, by definition, unpublished IDs. You see what I mean? Until it's published, it's not published. It doesn't mean the idea is, 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 is wrong or not valuable. So don't uh, live only by this uh, pyramid. But this is a message to, to academics, because I think that I hope that practitioners in the field, uh, you know, make decisions and, 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 and live their lives of practitioners without backing everything up with, with research. We want to tend towards that, but sometimes we cannot. On this similar topic, and you'll see it, and I, I think I think I cringe every time I see it. I'm not quite sure why, but I, I definitely do. And it's it's the comment of all oh, the research is always insert number of years five, ten. The research is always five or ten years behind, and that's almost justification sometimes for 
doing outlandish things or, you know, not trusting the process or whatever it is. How do you feel about that comment? Because you'll have seen that hundreds of times. Yeah, what, what you mean is uh, some research that is like uh, pointless or that, that doesn't really make sense. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's almost comes with... Um, there'll be there'll be something that gets published in research and in a, in a particular paper and the comment will be we've been doing this for 10 years the the research is always 10 years behind so that's that's almost putting them like lifting them up to say we're kind of ahead of the the clever the clever academics they're just doing what we've always they're just getting to know what we've always done type of situation yeah. It's exactly to me the, the, the opposite process as what we've just discussed before. It's field people in their ivory tower, like, you know, okay, you did it. The, the objective of research is not to do something that nobody ever did. The objective of research is to apply the scientific method to see if this made sense and if this is robust facing the scientific process. So if you, if you did it for years, that's perfect. But again, uh, uh, doing it with the research process will tell us, yes, this was known in the field and this was like true or right or, or evidenced or not. So, uh, so it's, it's always the same. It's yes, the objective of research is sometimes to, uh, let's say, I don't like this, this word, but to prove or to support by you know data statistics and everything uh what people did on the field so i always say we we take shots from both sides sometimes we take shots from the coaches like uh this is pointless we know it and we've been doing it for years and sometimes we say this is we hear with this is pointless because nobody does it it doesn't make sense sometimes it does and and, and so on so yeah uh, a bit more of an open-minded approach is, is needed. But again, some research sometimes justifies this type of comments, like, you know, reinventing the wheel and, uh, yeah. When I had Robin Thorpe on the podcast a couple, couple of years ago, and he, he's been a practitioner, but he's done his PhD and he's got and maintained this kind of academic uh, input throughout his career. And he, he spoke about the importance of that from from his perspective as a academic coming from the other side do you see that do you see that as as an important um kind of thread that that should potentially be running through applied practitioners careers that that academic input official academic input yeah you mean for them yeah for them move to a yeah, yeah, so so you because uh, everyone's majority of people are coming through a, a um, undergraduate degree, MSc, potential PhD, and rather yeah. than that stopping and just okay, I'm a practitioner now. I've got my certificate yeah. by academia. I'm I'm the practitioner. Do you think that should that thread should continue? So there should be a, a continuation of that MSc, PhD, and through publications. Absolutely, because the best way to solve the two previous questions, like academic people just, you know, blaming practitioners for not having support, uh, supporting evidence and practitioners blaming academic people for doing things that they, they are doing for years. The best way to solve that is to merge, is to mix people and have more academics 
doing some sports, you know, uh, type of courses, teaching and so on to really see what they're talking about. And at the same time, some sports people doing um, uh, academic type of teaching, at least to me, the master's degree, the master's of science is to me a very good point to start because if the master's course is, is good, you will be taught about what statistical power, uh, what is a control condition, uh, what is a good or a, a poor study design. And then you will have the keys to better understand the difference between. So the best way is to have people, you know, crossing, crossing roads. And uh, uh, I think that should, be, that should be developed more. I was very happy to, to give you an anecdote. I gave a masterclass at the French Football Federation, like recently. All the guys in the room were working in a pro environment in France, in football, they all had a master's degree in sports science. When we started the session, I asked them, what's your highest degree? They all had a master's degree. Believe me, the two days in terms of quality of discussion and, and open-mindedness were incredible, incredible. 20 years ago, uh, it, it, or 10 years ago, it was absolutely not the case. So both fields will improve when people uh, uh, try to get some, some credit, some experience uh, from the other field, definitely. How many practitioners were there at the French Federation? Uh, on, that, on that masterclass, it was something like 10, 15. So if you, if you were going to go back in 10 years' time, do you, would you suspect that those would have a PhD? Do you think that's going to become you mean, you mean, the... Them same practitioners will have upped their game and, and gone yeah. through that process of getting a PhD. And that, I suppose that's my question of the industry. Is it going to become the norm that these kind of practitioners go through that process? So I, I won't shoot myself in the foot as a, as a PhD supervisor, but to me, that shouldn't be the objective. It, the, the, the PhD shouldn't be an objective. The PhD should be a process. So... To me, a good master's degree in sports science is enough as a practitioner to understand science, academic publications, and apply it very well in your, in your professional environment. The PhD will not, will not help more in that direction. Okay, A two-year master's degree well done is enough. The PhD will not make you better at applying science. The objective of a PhD is to make you better at generating knowledge and science. So if you want as a practitioner to generate knowledge and science, then yes, move towards the PhD process. If you think that the PhD will, will make you better at, uh, uh, with your radar and understanding and applying science, in my opinion, you're wrong. So this is why I guess in these practitioners only maybe one or two will move towards the PhD process because they want to play the game of generating knowledge. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure a PhD is necessary. And I, I'm not sure the, you know, the, the, the investment, because it's, it's long, it's tough, and so on, is, is necessary. So, Do you think, and it's, you'll, you'll see this is going to be a, probably a loaded question here, JB, but I'd love your honest opinion. Do you think... The practitioners, because there's loads of practitioners now who are embarking on PhDs, do you think they're going about it for the way that you've just described? Or do you, do you think there's a misinterpretation? Or do you think there's other reasons why practitioners are seeking the PhD 
as their kind of next goal, certificate, whatever it is? I don't know, but if if seeking uh, to to validate a PhD is just to have doctor before your name and PhD after, it's not the good object. In my opinion, it's not the good objective. Uh, I'm not fully convinced that that most high-level sports uh, institutions, when they hire people, uh, focus on the PhD. I think uh, if your profile is a very good high-level sports experience and a very good master's degree, maybe some publications and so on, that might be enough for many, many contexts. Well, except if, of course, a PhD is officially needed. And um, well, if people want to have that PhD, then if that's their incentive, then they will maybe. But I mean, the main reason for trying to, to get a PhD validated is I want to become a researcher. I want to add the researcher profile in my activity to my professional profile, then if this is the real reason, yes, go do it. But I'm not sure this is the, this is the real reason uh, most of the time. And this is uh, because then you will invest uh, more honestly your time and your energy through the process. So the last few questions have been building to this next one. And it is, we've got the most educated workforce that we've ever had with the things that you've just been mentioning. The MSCs is a, is a given, absolute given. There's plenty of people pushing towards PhDs, um, professional doctorates, etc. Is this having, and this is a very wide question, broad question, is this having the impact that these particular practitioners, I think, I hope, they would want on their athlete preparation? Honestly, overall, I think so. Overall, I think so. Because, so again, I, I could, you know, live in a bit of both fields and, and, and see the field of high-level sports science for 20 years. I think the overall, you know, improvement of the basis of knowledge, I don't say the peak of, of, of knowledge of people, but the basis is that, uh, again, I, I take French football or rugby. Uh, 20 years ago, a master's degree was the, was the, was the minority now it's the majority. And I think this is overall improving the field in terms of quality of the physical prep, of the athlete's performance, quality overall, even if this is not perfect, but of the injury prevention. And uh, there has been a very cool blog post recently about the improvement in overall track and field performance. Um, uh, and Alex Hutchinson was discussing many, many points. And of course, everybody zooms in on the shoes, on the super spikes and everything. But then he says, there is something more than the super spikes. And one of his points was the overall quality of education of the coaches that is improving. And that in terms of, you know, training load and so on. And that results in also partly explaining the improvement in performance. So I definitely guess overall the answer is yes. And this is, this is, this is, uh, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Excellent. That's the uh, that's the answer that everyone wanted to hear. So that's that's good. In this whole research process, and I wouldn't normally do this, but is there anything that we've missed that you think would be is essential for practitioners out there to understand about this process that they may just read the paper and and you know forget about what happens before then. But is there anything important that practitioners should know from the inside from your twenty years experience going through this? 
Yeah. The, the thing that we did not discuss, and I, I will try to, to summarize that briefly, is um, uh, a publication is the result of a human process. So it means there are human biases all along the process. So it means don't be systematically over-skeptical and say any paper that is published has something strange and, and we don't know. But don't be too naive because sometimes quite poor research is published in highly ranked journals. I said sometimes. I didn't say it's systematic, of course. But And vice versa, sometimes some very high quality research is eventually published in a lower ranked journal. So keep your, you know, uh, self-judgment and don't be influenced too much by the type of journal be influenced by the content there are a lot of uh, political personal reasons to explain why there there are some like mismatches between paper quality and type of journal i explain you the 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 road of a typical paper in in one minute there's another's work that is submitted to an editor and, and the editors have the choice because they are editors, so they edit the journal content. So they say yes, no. Then some section editors say yes, no. And we cannot say yes to everything. So very often we say no. They send that to two to five persons who will say yes, no. And eventually it's published or not. We try to be as objective as possible, but as for any human activity, sometimes there is influences, maybe conflicts of interests, lack of honesty, personal reasons. So it's a human activity. It is science, it is serious, it is methods based, but it is not perfect. Interesting. One thing that one thing that always comes up is the the openness of the reviewers now this is this is nuanced now and we'll get into the detail but the pu- the publication of who has reviewed particular papers is that something that you have an opinion on yeah i think it's um i think it's overall um, a good thing because uh it tells the authors were the reviewers really totally independent because the the two the two types of error is pushing for publication of a paper that is not good because you have an interest in seeing that paper published. And the opposite, pushing towards rejecting a paper, even if it's good, because you have interest in this should never be published, like it's contradicting my results or whatever. So there is no real good solution to avoid these two biases, but I saw these two biases very often. And uh, publishing the names could could be a good thing because you can see if... Of course, they are experts on the topic. You can see if they are directly or indirectly connected to the reader, so to the to the authors. So I think that could be a good thing, but of course it's not the magic stick. There will always be some 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 errors in that process. And of course, you know, it's been for years. So if 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 a solution was possible, then it would have been applied. It means maybe there is no solution. So again, the solution is content counts and content should be first. And my last question on this before I let you go and get on with the weekend. Payment for reviewers. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the solution um, because uh, some would become professional reviewers 
And because, if, because it's anonymous, uh, journals will not be aware about uh, JB has been paid a hundred times this year to review papers. And, we, and he sent some reviews of three lines like, okay, this is good or okay, this is not. So I, I think that putting money, like, you know, raw money in a system, in my opinion, will, will take the quality down. But there's other ways to, to uh, financially, you know, push reviewers to do some good job. You can have the reviewers reviewing, the editors ranking the quality of the review. So if it's two lines like, bravo, thank you, it's a poor review. And depending on the ranking of the review and your amount of reviews, you can get some papers published free of charges. That's money. That's not personal money, but that's money that you could reuse. You have like a token for a free paper. And that could be a way to use money without using money. But I overall think that this would, this, this would mess everything up. Every time you put money, like, you know, you, 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 have, you, have, you have kids, you, you gave money to your kids so they, they do something for you, 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 you screw the game. It's, uh, you never know if they do it because they really wanted it. So I'm not a big fan of that. Cool. Good place to finish, I think, JB. If anyone wants to look at your research or research that you've been involved in, where can people find that? And where can people find the more altmetrics that we've been talking about and social media stuff? Yeah, so number one, PubMed. That's where all the published... I'm very lucky there's, there's no other uh, people with the same name and initials. So, so if you type my name, you, you, you access to my research. Then we have ResearchGate. That's a, that's a legal website where you can access research and request papers. And for the altmetric, that's a good point. Um, there is a very cool uh, thing that you can have an altmetric add-in to your browser, your internet browser. And when you have the page of a paper open, you just click to altmetric it and to this add-in and it shows you the little uh, uh, altmetric uh, explanations for that specific paper. So that's a good way to, to know more about that. And of course, there's Google citations for the citations and, and, and the best papers of that person. That's a good way to track uh, things a bit differently. So is that like a Google uh, plugin or something, the altmetrics? Yeah, yeah, I have it right now. I, I can okay. see it in my, in my favorites. It's okay, a, nice. So of course, altmetric is not perfect, but it's a, yeah, it's a good way to see uh, the life of a paper. Altmetric will just tell you the, the, the life of a paper in terms of scientific citations, social media impact. Has it been tweeted a lot, commented a lot? So it's, it's a good thing. I mean, an altmetric score of 400 is, is very big. An altmetric score of two is low. Of course, it depends on the age of the paper, but uh, that's a good way to have these alternatives. But Perfect. again, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it before reading the paper. Read first. Of course, of course. Right, JB, I'm going to let you crack on with the weekend. But thank you very much for coming on again. Really appreciate it. Super interesting topic and one that I don't think is talked about enough. So um, yeah, really appreciate you sharing your experiences and um, all that goes with it. So thank you very much. Thanks, Rob, as always. Cheers, JB. Thanks for tuning in to episode 455 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So slightly different topic, well, very different topic to what we're normally uh, discussing on the podcast with the X's and O's, but I think a really interesting one, a really important one, especially for early years practitioners to fully understand how to make the most of research. 
So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to JB for giving up an hour and a half of his time on a weekend while he's away with the family uh, and chatting all things research and sports science. Big thanks to you for tuning in and I look forward to chatting to you next time.